0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Esther chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What? honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this. And the king's young men who had attended him said, nothing's been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman's there standing in the court, and the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor Take the robes and the horse, as you've said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate But Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring haman to the feast that esther had prepared let's pray together our lord what a what a remarkable passage of holy scripture this is we pray our lord not only that you would show us yourself here but encourage us all regarding who the main actor is the lead actor in all of world history is we pray in the name of christ the lord amen who's the main actor or the main character if you will in the book of esther well in the esther story you'd first of all say well it's esther but this is a pivotal chapter in the book of esther And her name isn't even mentioned until the very end in a rather incidental way. Well, others would say Ahasuerus, because he was, of course, the king of Persia. But Ahasuerus doesn't come across as a strong or particularly wise leader, let alone a main character. Haman? Well, Haman's not going to be in the picture much longer. What about Mordecai? Well, Mordecai probably would win an award for a supporting actor but he's not the lead actor in the book of esther the main character in the book of esther is the main character of your story and the main character of our world and one of the striking things about that is while this name is not even mentioned in esther this name is of the one who is most important even as in our world, that name is mentioned very, very little, yet he's still, still the main character. Well, things are really, really looking bad for these Jews who are in Persia, particularly the capital of Persia, Susa, uh, several hundred years before the birth of Christ. Under the command of Haman, there has been an edict against the Jews and that because Haman has had his nose bent out of shape by the failure of Mordecai the Jew to bow down to him. And now the law of the Medes and the Persians is that 11 months later, all of the Jews in the Persian Empire are to be wiped out. And Esther, although she is now the queen to King Ahasuerus, Esther, well, she doesn't seem to be helping very much. Uh, She has two banquets in which she invites the king and... Haman to be present. Haman now has a hissy fit regarding Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down to him again, and the counsel, as we learned in chapter 5, is to just get him, hang him, and make a public statement to all of the people in Susa that you'd better bow down to this Haman. So as night falls, the end of chapter 5 in Esther, A 75-foot-high gallows to have Mordecai hung on is being built. He'll get the okay, Haman will, from the king. Tomorrow morning, first thing, he'll go to the king and get permission to have Mordecai taken out. shouldn't be like this. And that is so often our lives, like Job. All these things are against me. Things in your work, things in your family, things in extended family, things perhaps even in your church life shouldn't be like this. Things in our own nation, it shouldn't be like this. Why is this happening? Well, keep in mind, the main character in Esther... The main character in the world, the main character in your life is always at work, and we'll see that in this text. It is called arguably the most comic scene in the entire Bible, and I want to let the story tell itself to you. I've tried not to get in the way of the story, except along the way to uh, give you a few applications of it. So in verses 1 through the first part of verse 6, in Esther chapter 6, we have a sovereign setup. It begins this way, on that night, the king could not sleep. Literally, on that night, sleep fled from the king. Why? Well, there's a Greek version of the Old Testament called a Septuagint, and even though you don't get these words from the text, the way the Septuagint puts it is exactly right, but the Lord took away sleep from the king. That's the main character in your life and in the book of Esther. It's God. Even though his name isn't mentioned in the book of Esther, even though his name isn't mentioned in our culture except to deride him and to mock him and to blaspheme him, even though his name isn't mentioned, he is still the main character here. So we continue to read about God's sovereign setup at the last part of verse one in chapter six. So the king, who could have basically done anything to help himself sleep, he could have gotten a woman from his harem, he could have gotten another meal, perhaps some warm milk to take, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, Of all the king's options, this one, a book, and it's a boring one at that. It's a little bit like reading 1st and 2nd Chronicles. It's not usually the book that you go to first to read. Uh, It's an account of wars, account of victories, kind of defeats. It's got census figures in it. That's what these Chronicles were. And um, why did he do that? That's because of the main character who's at work that prompted the king totally out of his own responsibility to make the choice to bring this rather boring book of memorable deeds and they were read before the king. But that's not all of God's sovereignty. In verse 2 it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now we read about that in chapter 2 in the book, after Esther has become a queen, right about that time, which was five years or so before. That's when Mordecai, who had served in the king's gate, he was an official of the king, heard, overheard, this plot to kill King Ahasuerus, told it to Esther. Esther in turn told it to the king, And when the king found out out about Teresh, Bigthana, and Teresh, um, well, there ended up being two less citizens in Susa. And it just so happens that when they're reading this book of the Chronicles on the night the king could not sleep, God's sovereign setup, they turn to this section, something that had happened five years before. Now, this wakes the king up. And he said, verse 3, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Now, the pattern for Persian kings was always to give very, very significant gifts or benefits to those who had helped them in particular ways, like saving your life, for example. Uh, That, number one, would build loyalty on the part of the citizens to the king who was so magnanimous, so generous to him. It was also a way of self-protection because it was a way of making a statement that if you assist the king you protect the king you will be honored but nothing had been done for mordecai and so the king said who's in the court keep god's sovereignty in mind here god's sovereignty in what is called providence god's preserving and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions including as the king asks who's in the court. This is the very time that Haman has come early in the morning to the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai, 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 who was to be honored by the king, to have him hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Here's God's sovereignty, and you've got to laugh at this when in psalm 2 it says he who sits in the heavens laughs well you can just imagine that and so there is haman and the king's young men told him haman's there standing in the court and the king said let him come in now i want you to imagine haman Uh, it's a pretty severe thing he's going to ask the king for to have this man executed but notice that the king gives him permission to come in, even as he gave permission for Esther to come to him and ask whatever she will, up to half his kingdom. And no doubt, this is exactly what Haman thinks. The king is beckoning me to come. He's in a good mood. He's going to tell me, ask whatever you want, and it will be given to you. And the king, almost obliging Haman's thoughts, so Haman comes in, the king says to him in chapter 6 and verse 6, what should be done, and I want you to notice this phrase, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? He doesn't mention, doesn't mention that person, that's God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over things we do say, He's sovereign over things we don't say. And note that phrase that's used six times in that chapter, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now watch as you continue chapter six and verse six, watch how Haman's idol pops up again. So Haman, first of all, says to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman was not a good guy. Haman was full of pride. And remember, pride goes before destruction. But Haman is convinced that this is what the king wants to give to him. Again, he invited Haman to come in. And Haman said to the king, and it's as if he is hes thinking this through so he can really build this up. For the man whom the king delights to honor, says Haman, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. That's what Haman wants for himself. Now, there's more in this than meets the eye. The only other place in the Old Testament where you find anything quite like this is in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verses 1 through 5, where Jonathan realizes David's going to be the king. It's not going to be Jonathan. And in a similar way, he gives to David the armor that he has and other things and wants him to wear them. Why? He was making a statement to David david not jonathan son of saul would be the king and i think this is somewhat what's in view here this is a way of making a statement that haman is next in line to replace the king once the king is no longer around and haman wants it known because remember he thinks he's getting this honor that he really is second in command. Now watch how Haman's idol is blasted. Remember this is regarded as one of the most is the most comic scene in the Bible. Then the king said to Haman, "Ready? Hurry. Take the robes and the horse as you've said and do so to Mordecai the Jew." Who sits at the king's gate? Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Wow! If ever there was a picture of how pride went before destruction, it's here. Imagine the look on Haman's face, and imagine the look on his face as he took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him. Here's the line again Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Whoa! There's a phrase called being hoisted with his own petard. Uh, in other words, uh, a petard was a weapon of destruction. To be hoisted wasn't so much to be lifted up as to be blown up or to destroyed, but basically it means to be destroyed by the very device that you built. The Psalms speak of it. The wicked have sunk in the pit they prepared. And that is exactly what is happening to Haman beginning here. This is only part one of Haman being hoisted with his own petard. Don't you see God's sovereignty again and his providence? Again, what is providence? His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Romans eleven thirty six. For of him and through him and to him are not some things, are all things, to whom be the glory forever, Amen. Now that means, brothers and sisters, there are no little things, there is no chance, there's no luck, there's no fate. In fact, technically, there's no incidents. Everything is a coincident, in which man is one hundred percent responsible in what he or she does, and God is 100% sovereign in all that he decrees. And I want you to ponder that for your encouragement. Jesus says that even the hairs of your heads are numbered. Not not a bird falls from a tree, but the Lord knows of it. And then he says, are you not of much more value than the birds or than the flowers that God adorns, the grass that God causes to grow? Brothers and sisters, what a powerful lesson. God's sovereignty right down to the king not being able to sleep, the king picking the book, uh, the the section of the book that's opened up deals with Mordecai, uh, the decision that the, the king makes to honor someone, and he sees Haman, asks Haman what should be done, and Haman gives this and all of his pride, God's sovereignty over Ahasuerus' insomnia, over the book the section that's read and even sovereign over haman and his pride brothers and sisters you don't want a non-sovereign god if the lord is not sovereign over all things then everything is chaotic and that's not at all what the scriptures teach but there's something else in this and i mentioned it last week and it's timing Keep in mind that Mordecai, over that five-year period, when he should have been honored, and he had to watch as Haman was honored, probably with the honor that would have been given to him, Mordecai continued to serve the king. He continued to serve in the king's gate. and We don't have any account of his complaining or being bitter. And when the scriptures say, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time, that That's what Mordecai did. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God and his exaltation did come at the right time. At the same time, Mordecai did continue to stand, not to bow to Haman. And there were reasons for that. He knew that Haman was an Agagite. He knew that Haman's work was to destroy the Jews and he wasn't going to bow to that. And brothers and sisters, that's our pattern in this world. You never bow down to what is wrong. You never bow down to what would cause you to sin. But you leave all of these things in God's hand and pray, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at just the right time. But that's an interesting question. Why the wait? I mean, why didn't God just exalt Mordecai right away instead of Haman? Seems like the story would have been a whole lot neater then. Well, this is a fascinating insight into God's decrees. God gets the richest glory not out of keeping people from evil, but he gets his richest glory out of delivering his people from evil. There's a real sense in which that's the story of the whole Bible. You see that with Israel being delivered from Egypt before that, Abraham being brought out of Ur of the Chaldees, and supremely supremely you see it in the cross where God gets more glory out of delivering his people from evil by giving the God-man for the sins of his people than if man had never fallen. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't mean we understand everything the way we should. Jesus words, John thirteen and verse seven, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Or or when we sing, would you love the Him, O oh Father, you are sovereign. O oh Father, you are sovereign in all affairs of man. No powers of death or darkness can thwart your perfect plan. All chance and change, transcending supreme in time and space, you hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. O Father, you are sovereign, the Lord of human pain, transmuting earthly sorrows to gold of heavenly gain. All evil overruling, as none but conqueror could, your love pursues its purpose, our souls eternal good and that's a beautiful reference to surely his goodness and mercy not will follow me but will pursue me all the days of my life and i will dwell in the house of the lord forever psalm 23 and verse 6 well let's go back to haman in verses 12 and 13 you have the hurry home the humiliation and the horror so Haman returns to the king's, or Mordecai, rather, returns to the king's gate. He's going to go back to his service, and he's going to have an even higher honor. But Haman, here's the hurry, he hurries to his house morning and doesn't want anybody to see him. With his head covered, he is so embarrassed. Now this one who was in the carriage and was being honored by the people is now leading around the man who stood against him by not bowing. Haman tells his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that happened to him. He's so humiliated, so embarrassed. His bubble has been burst. And then his wise men, isn't that interesting? A second reference to the wise men in this book. And his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. Now Haman's not really a good guy. Um, when you have to tell your wife the number of children you have. There's something really wrong there. And it's almost like they have a certain relief. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, and of course he is, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. How did they know that? How how did these Persians know that Haman is not going to overcome the Jewish people, but will surely fall before him? Well, the text doesn't say, but we can pretty well figure this out. Remember that that the encyclopedia at this time wasn't in book form. There wasn't there wasn't uh, printing a, a printing press. At that time, most most facts, the encyclopedia, if you will, was in people's memories, and it came by stories that had been told about things in the past. And the Persians probably knew of this man Abraham, of whom it said in Genesis 12, in verse three, "Whoever blesses you, I will bless; and whoever curses you, I will curse." And that yeah that might be an idle thing that people would forget, except that a few hundred years later, when Abraham's seed, then Noah's as, as Israel was in Egypt. And the Israelites were, by powerful works of God, allowed to let leave Egypt. It was a pretty well-known account in history that when Egypt pursued the Israelites, while the Israelites got safely through the parted waters of the Red Sea, a large part of the Egyptian army was wiped out. And there's even archaeological records that indicate that about this time. So that would have been known to them. And then also the fact that Agag... Who was in the line would, uh, that Haman would come from the line of Agag in Exodus chapter 17 especially verse 14 it is because the Agagites were opposing the Lord's people the Lord said I will blot out the name of the Amalekites the tribe of Agag I will blot out the name of the Amalekites I will come up later and so probably these Persians had known something of this from their, from their oral history, their oral encyclopedia, and they said, uh, you're not going to win. Now, let me make an application of the church before we wrap all of this up. Jesus said in Matthew 16 and verse 18, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And gates are not offensive weapons, brothers and sisters. Gates are defenses. The gates that protect the city are not going to prevail against the forward movement of King Jesus in his church. God is going to save his people and nothing will stop him. And that lesson is taught here so clearly. God's going to save the Jews. And not Haman, not an edict, nothing is going to stop him because of God's absolute sovereignty. There's a fascinating story in Acts chapter 23, beginning at verse 12. And the religious leaders have gotten pretty sick of Paul, the apostle Paul, and what he's doing as he is seeing people one to Christ. And so 40 of them in Acts 23, 40 of the religious leaders decide they take a vow. They're not going to eat or drink until they put Paul to death. That's pretty serious. Paul's in prison, and as it works out, his nephew happens to overhear this conversation in the temple. 40 people who take a vow, they're not going to eat or drink until they have killed Paul. So the nephew goes to tell Paul, Paul says, go tell the centurion, those are the leaders of the troops that were protecting him, and fill them in on that. They hear this from the nephew who, in God's sovereignty, in God's providence, overheard that plot to kill Paul. The centurion goes to their own leader and plans are made to get Paul out of prison and have him with an escort, interestingly enough, With 40 horses, he's got an armed guard to protect him so he can go to the governor of the area, Felix, and present his case there. Paul was a Roman citizen. And if those 40 people who took a vow that they would neither eat nor drink until they killed Paul, if they had killed Paul, those centurions would have been in big trouble. God's sovereignty over where Paul's nephew was So that, like Mordecai overhearing the plot to kill Ahasuerus, he overheard the plot to kill Paul, uh, tells the authorities, and Paul's life is saved. That's God's sovereignty, brothers and sisters, over the smallest events in life. You cannot stop God's purposes. As we wrap this up, I want to speak with you for a moment about this phrase the man whom the king delights to honor. Remember that that Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, these are the last books of the Old Testament that were written some four to 500 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in those last books of the Old Testament, you'll see the theme of counterfeits ahasuerus is a counterfeit of true leadership for example and theme of counterfeits and you'll also see the theme of fulfillments things that are types or pictures of christ who would come and these are little shafts of light that shine on what would be what we would come to know as the new testament the anti-haman in the new testament is christ himself even as Haman loved to be paraded through the city, Jesus in the triumphal entry rides, uh, but not in pomp and splendor on a donkey, on the foal of a, of a, of a male donkey, and, and a foal of a, a foal of a, of a grown donkey. So unlike Haman, exactly unlike Mordecai, on the other hand, is very much a type of Christ, Mordecai humbled For years should have been exalted, but wasn't, finally was in his time. So you see those shafts of light on the New Testament. But I want you to notice the contrast here. Mordecai. Mordecai receives a death sentence. And that's reversed. And he is paraded through the city and goes to the king's gate. With Jesus, it's just the opposite. Jesus is paraded through the city, too. Not with a horse, but on foot. He walks, bearing his own cross. No robes. In fact, he is stripped of his robes. He also has a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. And there's proclamation. That proclamation, totally unlike what was said of Mordecai, is crucify him, crucify him he is paraded through the city to his death sentence. Not a gallows, but the cross to save his people as Mordecai would be an instrument to save his people. Like Haman, Satan is hoisted with his own petard. The very, the very instrument that he believed would be put to death. His great nemesis, Jesus Christ, the cross, was that instrument by which the apostle Paul says, Jesus disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in it, in the cross. Power to kill, power to to accuse, power to murder, power to destroy, power to deceive, all of that is disarmed by this glorious event called Good Friday. And then for Jesus, there is the great reversal. After his death sentence, he is raised from the dead and he reigns in glory as the man whom the king delights to honor before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is lord two things one christ's death and resurrection secure all of the promises of god for you that's that's why the jews could have an encouragement they had promises of god that had been given to them and you do too when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you rest in him, you trust in him. Every one of those promises is yes and amen to you. What does that mean? Well, listen how the text in Romans chapter 8 so beautifully refers to God's sovereignty. You know the text well. Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. How can all things work together for your good? Because God is sovereign over all things. Whether you sleep or don't sleep. Whether you read a book or don't read a book. What portion of a book you read, see? And then Paul will go on and he'll say in that fascinating text beginning at verse 35 in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written think of the jews in the book of esther for your sake we're being killed all the day long we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered as the israelites were knowing all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us that is by the sovereign instrumentality of god for i am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is that? It's because God is sovereign over all things, and he will take the winds of adversity that will blow one vessel against the rocks and dash it, and he'll use that to blow the vessel of your own soul and body into the haven of heaven it's a It's fascinating to ponder God's sovereignty and the second thing to ponder in this text, don't be like Haman. Pride goes before destruction. You will not win your fight with God, the old black spiritual young man. Your arms are too short to box with God. Challenge his truth. Dishonor his people. The Lord calls his people the apple, the most sensitive part of his eye. And you will not win the battle. This is called sudden reversal number one. Everyone has sudden reversal. You are in a state of sin and death. And you are brought into a state of life by the sovereign grace of God in this act called regeneration. It happens in a moment. And you honor the man whom God delights to honor. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And you throw down the weapons of your warfare that were used to challenge his truth and to dishonor his bride, his church. And you show evidence that you pass from death to life. And yes, it is sudden. And some of you, you learned of it gradually in your youth and others of us, it's more dramatic. But that sudden reversal that comes in what's called regeneration. But there's another sudden reversal. It's from life to death. You're living, you're breathing, you're walking, your heart stops, and your soul is separated from your body. We're going about our work. And in a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, the Lord returns from heaven, and it is sudden, and the day of grace is past, And if that's what happens to you, You're living a life outside of Christ and then you die or you immediately appear before Jesus at the judgment. And you will honor the man whom God delights to honor. Not in your salvation, but in your everlasting judgment. Notice in verse 14 how suddenly God works. And this is so important for you to see that word hurriedly is used several times in this text. In verse 14, don't miss this. In verse 14 in Esther chapter 6, no sooner has Haman been told that he will surely fall before Mordecai. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. While you're yet talking, the Lord may separate your soul from your body, And at the last day, bring you to judgment. Or if we're alive, when Jesus comes back, we'll be yet talking. And the king's angels will arrive from heaven. And they will hurry to unite the souls and the bodies of those who have departed. And to take up, to be before Jesus the judge, those who are alive. Those of you who are in Christ, you will be brought to the feast. Not that Esther prepared, but that Jesus is prepared. But if you're outside of Christ, you will be brought, as Haman would be, to your own destruction. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Listen to this final stanza of, O Father, you are sovereign. O Father, you are sovereign, we see you dimly now, but soon before your triumph, earth's every knee shall bow. With this glad hope before us, our faith springs up anew. Our sovereign Lord and Savior, we trust and worship you. To worship God is to ascribe worth to him. It is because, because he's glorious, it means he is weighty. You give God weight in everything because God is the main character not only in this world but also in your life let's pray now our lord seal these words to our hearts that we will realize you are sovereign right down to the pages of a book that we read or that is read to us your sovereign over wherever we are, as Haman was in the king's court early that morning, so you are sovereign over our every step and our every move. And we pray, our Lord, that on the one hand, that would drive us to yourself, that we realize we cannot win if we're rebelling against you, and at the same time to be encouraged that it is because you are sovereign that there's not one of your promises that won't be fulfilled. And God, deliver us from being like Haman, who despised your truth and despised your people and became a picture of those who will suffer for all eternity because they didn't bow down to the King Jesus, the one whom you delight to honor. We ask all of these things, praying for good to come from this ministry, for Jesus' sake. Amen.